This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 23. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All right. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This, of course, is Session 23, brought to you by our good friends over at Gearsluts.com. Ah, just sitting here with my cup of coffee, relaxed in my chair. I'm looking outside. I've got the window open. Sun is actually starting to come out, and you might be able to hear the sound of birds. So we're going to have birds on the show today, but that's actually not all. We're actually going to have two really good guests for you today. Yes, two. Uh, We're going to have a short appearance, first of all, by my friend Michael Winger very shortly here. Michael is uh, the director of the the executive director of the Recording Academy for the San Francisco chapter. He's going to come on and talk to us about a uh, piece of legislation that is slowly, slowly, slowly making its way through the U.S. government, as everything does. And... uh, We're talking about H.R. 1457, the Allocation for Music Producers Act, or the AMP Act. So um, stay tuned for that. I think that uh, some of you may roll your eyes and go, oh my gosh, how boring. But really, you should pay attention because it directly affects your bottom line. And if you produce uh, or, you know, produce or engineer, and you have any kind of arrangement, financial arrangement with the artists you work with, you're going to want to pay attention to this. I had no idea about this. I mean, I had an inkling that this was happening. And then I read uh, in Mix Magazine, Gino Robert's article on the topic. And I immediately called Gino and was like, hey, Gino, you should come on the show and talk about this. And Gina was like, actually, you should call Mike Winger and have him come on and talk about that because he's going to know a little bit more about it than I will. So through Gino's article and courtesy of Mike Winger, we're going to have a little discussion about that today. So that's coming up here shortly. And the, the featured guest on today's show, of course, is Mr. Ryan Hewitt, who's worked with a boatload of people, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Johnny Cash, and that's, of course, a smidgen of the people he's worked with. He's worked with a million people, but he's also worked with a lot of producers and engineers like Jim Scott and Rick Rubin. And man, fascinating guy to talk to because of the way he's come up through the world of recording. Because I don't know about you, but my father was not involved in the recording industry. Well, Ryan's has been. So Ryan's had a little bit different uh, upbringing than the rest of us, I think which is very cool. So that's coming up. Let's jump on over to uh, our conversation with Mr. Mike Winger. Then, of course, we will head on over to uh, talk with Ryan Hewitt. All these calls today, of course, are happening on Skype. And, you know, we don't have a deal with Skype. We don't have some kind of, I don't know, if people get priority, you know, traffic on Skype. But anyways, so we've suffered a couple, there's a couple little glitches here and there. So, you know, just be prepared for it. It's there. and uh, But the conversation carries on and the information carries on. So that's it. All right. So uh, let's talk to Mike Winger right now. Hey, there you are. Morning. Morning. Wow. Where are you? I'm in uh, Rancho Palos Verdes. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty good. Are you working? Yeah, we're having our trustees meeting right now. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for coming on the podcast and talking about this because I think it's I think it's important and it's very relevant to the listenership of working class audio uh, so let's let's review a couple things so so it's called HR 1457 allocation for music producers act right 
Yeah, we refer to it as the AMP Act because everything in Washington has to have an acronym that makes up a word. How Washington? <laughs> yes, it's very Washington. But uh-uh. but uh, yeah, the AMP Act is is our uh, is is the name for this one, and it is the first time that any bill has been introduced that that mentions producers. Uh, and it looks like the uh, the sponsors, uh, Representative Joseph Crowley from uh, Democrat from uh, New York's 14, uh, 14th Congressional District. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, we have a whole advocacy team here um, at the Academy that is in Washington and, and basically lobbies on behalf of our members. And all our members are songwriters and producers and engineers and performers and all creative music professionals. And uh, Joe Crowley is one that, that we've... Uh, We've had a good relationship with, and he's done some events for us in the past and, you know, spoken at some events for us in the past and town hall sort of things. And um, he's just, you know, he there's a lot of members of Congress that get it. And then there's a lot of members of Congress that that uh, that are, you know, not they they are they have their sides that they need to be on. I'll just put it that way. And this is a this is a another a part of another piece of legislation that's being considered uh, that. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it has to do with songwriters and royalties paid from terrestrial radio. Is that correct? Yeah. So there's this legislation is a standalone bill as the AMP Act, and it is also part of what we call an omnibus bill, which includes a number of other um, other items that are in separate bills, kind of all put together. So. The one you were just talking about is, is is a performance right act that was introduced a few years back, and it's actually been worked on for about 80 years uh, or more by folks. I know Frank Sinatra used to try and fight to have broadcast radio, terrestrial radio, pay artists and, and the performers and the copyright holders um, when songs were played on broadcast radio. But that because that's something that they do in Europe, but they don't do in the United States, correct? They do it in almost every country in the world, except for places like uh, Syria, I think, and Iraq and North Korea and Iran. It's kind of like the, it was kind of like George Bush's old axis of evil. How <laughs> ironic. <laughs> yeah. And, we're, and yet, we're actually, yeah, when it comes to performance royalties, we're, we're in that, that group. So with regards to the, the performance royalties for musicians and terrestrial radio, I'm to understand that while those royalties are collected for, say, an American act in Europe, they're not actually distributed because U.S. doesn't do it for European musicians. Right. There's no reciprocal agreement. Um, if an artist is, is, has their song performed, let, let's just take someone, someone like, uh, uh, I'm trying to think about an artist who doesn't write their own song, somebody like Aretha Franklin. Um, okay. and, and she's got a, a song that she sang in the 80s that is played on the air in the U.K., the UK would pay the song would pay both Aretha Franklin and the songwriter um, to if she were a British citizen. But because she's US based, um, she wouldn't actually get paid that money, and it would go into a a pool that basically does something. You know, they keep the money because we don't have a reciprocal agreement so that when say Sam Smith's songs are played in the US, they don't go back to Britain because the money's not even collected by the radio stations. Okay. So, and that's part of, that's called HR what? Uh, the Fair Play, that's called the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act. That uh, is a separate bill, but it has, it has the AMP Act in it. I do want to move on to the AMP Act, but I'm just curious. Let's say it all passes. Mm-hmm. 
and the floodgates are open. Europe's been collecting this pool of royalties, but the U.S. hasn't. Does that mean the U.S. has to retroactively pay all of these artists boatloads of money from year upon year of no, royalties? No, probably not. It, I, you know, it always depends on how they start a law. You know, there's always grandfathering of things. I'm, I'm sure there's not going to be some sort of retroactive ex post facto thing. They generally would would you know say beginning as of this date, and the likelihood also just so that it doesn't you know, seriously disrupt accounting practices, they'd probably phase it in. And I believe that's even in the law, but usually these things, you know, they're negotiated. They're not, it's not something where, Oh, we're going to win. And you, you know, everything you want is going to fall in your lap right away. It's more, it's more an issue if you, you negotiate something into, into law. So, okay. And then, so let's transition over to HR 1457, the AMP act that has to do with Producers and engineers. Mm-hmm. And what, what are the key points of that piece of legislation? So the AMP Act was, as you mentioned, it was introduced by both Joe Crowley and Tom Rooney, who's a Republican from Florida. So it was a bipartisan okay. bill. It was announced that it was going to come into being during Grammy week at our producers and engineers party. So the bill is the first time in U.S. history that there's a bill designed to address the needs of studio professionals. And as I mentioned, music producers have never been mentioned in copyright ever. And so we are working with a lot of representatives and it will ensure that producers get efficient and direct payment of performance royalties that they're due. The way it works is it'll create a statutory right for producers to receive royalties from sound exchange. And as long as they have a letter of direction from a featured artist... So it'll create a new process by which producers can request royalties from artists for older recordings as well. Um, so if in case there's no letter of direction in place, as long as the artist doesn't object, you know, it basically what it, what it means is there's currently a process in place that proof producers can do many or many of which many people are not aware of this. If you've produced someone's record and you're negotiating, you know, your payment structure up front, you can, as part of your agreement, get what's called a letter of direction that will allow a portion of that artist's sound exchange royalties to come directly to you as a producer. Okay. So when I was producing, I had a couple of artists that I did that with. And so as a result, whenever they get played on digital radio or you know satellites or Pandora or any of these online radio services and digital services, they pay into sound exchange and that money goes to half goes to the copyright holder of the sound recording and the other half goes to the performers and the performer the featured artist gets 45 percent of that full royalty and a lot of times a producer might get like a three percent carve out or more in a but that that's enacted by a letter of direction and over the past few years sound exchange they'll honor letters of direction currently even though it's not in law um, but what this law does is it formalizes that and puts a mechanism in place so that artists can kind of go back to records they've done where there wasn't a letter of direction. Interesting. Okay. So I talked to a lot of producers and engineers who kind of have given up on, you know, getting points or getting any kind of royalty. And this may change that. Yeah. And in fact, this, you know, this is something that all along, and I think, you know, as we move forward into a world of more and more streaming, this is the place where you have to where you have to do that. It's, it's the same right. You know, like when you used to get as a producer, you know, I would get 
three points on retail, which generally amounted to about 20% of the record's royalty rate on a major label contract. Now, if you're talking about streaming points, then you kind of have to do a similar percentage deal based on kind of streams of revenue instead of record sales. So it's, mm-hmm. it's the same principle. You just have to apply it to a new technology. Okay. That's great. That's great. And, uh, any other key points that we should be aware of with the AMP Act? You know, it's it's actually not a very controversial bill because all it's doing is codifying a process that is informally in place with sound exchange. So producers and engineers should be aware that as you're working with artists and as you're, you know, even if you're in the middle of an album right now, you should talk to them about sound exchange because, you know, first of all, the artists may not be aware of it. And if their record's about to go out online and ends up on Pandora or wherever, there's money waiting for the artist. And that's a service that you as a producer can tell the artist about, and that'll make them excited. And then while you're telling them about it, you say, and it's also standard for producers to get a portion of their royalty through this stream. So as part of our agreement, you know, we're going to get this letter of direction that you can download from SoundExchange website. We'll put in the terms and we'll send that in along with any other agreements that we come up with as we make the record. Because, you know, producers end up sometimes co-writing and that sort of thing. And there's often a lot of paperwork to fill out afterwards. So that if you kind of build that in early into your recording process, that can help you both inform your clients, which is a value add, and set up a new revenue stream for them, which is a value add, and then get paid yourself, which is the way you get compensated for that value add. Okay, great, great. And uh, it sounds like Sound Exchange is making it easy. They're facilitating, you know, with letters of direction. Uh, yeah. So, so as, a, as, as producers and engineers who are maybe taking a chance on an, on an up-and-coming act and there's not a big budget and there's, you know, generally when, it, when we talk about uh, royalties, that inevitably involves the, uh, the employment of a lawyer and that costs money. Right. So, yeah. And, and I mean, I would say just in general, I mean, you know, this is none of this should be taken as legal counsel. And, and with any of these types of agreements, even if you're downloading a form with SoundExchange, you should still consult with someone, you know, your own legal counsel. And, and I have to say that in as much as I also think it's just a darn good idea yeah, <laughs> that, if yeah. that if you're signing agreements, you know, for anything that involves money, that it's good to have a lawyer eyeball it. And every producer should at least have a lawyer friend that, that can do quick eyeballs for them without spending a ton of money. It's a good relationship to always have. Cool. I think that's good advice. Yeah. Okay. So this is not such a controversial bill. Is the is the other bill a little more controversial? Yeah, uh, it is. And the, the so the Fair Play Fair Pay Act uh, was introduced by another bipartisan pair of Congress people, uh, Jared Gerald Nadler from New York, uh, who's Democrat, and Representative Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, who's Republican. Both submitted this bill to get you know sponsored this bill and. It works on, uh, and I'll take these things in reverse order of how controversial they are. <laughs> so it involves the AMP Act. Um, it involves compensation for pre-1972 recordings. Currently, a lot of streaming services are using a loophole in the copyright law that allows them to not pay for recordings. Is not- that 72 or 62? 72. 72, okay. Yeah, so 1972. So if you performed on a song in 1971 and it gets played on Pandora, they don't necessarily pay into sound exchange for that recording. Uh-huh. And then the the controversial portion of, of the Fair Play Act 
which is basically like a reintroduction of an act called the Performance Rights Act, involves getting fair pay for performers on terrestrial radio, on broadcast radio. And what it seeks to do is create a fair rate standard across all platforms so that, you know, while digital and satellite radio pay totally different rates from one another, this gives, you know, this brings the broadcasters into it as well. So currently, for instance, if you were driving down the highway and you listened to a song on your, you know, if you have a stereo that's got Sirius XM and has an internet connection and also can go FM, you could listen to the same song back to back and the performer would get paid a, a reasonable rate on sound exchange. I mean, we still think that, you know, all the rates for artists should be higher, but would get paid for, for being um, played on Pandora at one rate. They would get paid at a lower rate when you switch to Sirius XM and they wouldn't get paid at all when you switch over to FM. Hmm. If you're listening to the same song in your car, you as a listener have no idea what the differences are. Yeah. Like you don't know that what's happening to the artist on the back end, but but the payments are are just at completely different rates across. So the Fair Play Fair Pay Act seeks to level, you know, to standardize the rates across all the platforms and it also does a few things that are designed to protect some of the smaller radio stations because that's a big thing is that you know artists don't want to harm their community stations if they've got you know if you've got a, a, a station like klx or you've got a you know a small npr station or a college radio station there are provisions in the bill that limit the amount per year that those stations have to pay and it's like 500 dollars. it's something really really low um, so is so to make sure that the small broadcasters are protected. But you know, radio is is a multi-billion-dollar industry. Um, yeah, and broadcast radio makes I think I, I think last I heard it was about seventeen billion per year. So they're not paying for their musical content, and they'll pay for Rush Limbaugh or they'll pay when they play you know a, a, the Giants on a baseball game or or any sports team. So they pay for content. They don't have a problem paying for the content. What they are, what they're doing is they're saying that you know that artists and performers shouldn't be paid because radio gives them some promotional value. And I'm not saying that they don't, but to not pay their artists anything is just simply unfair. And it's been going on for eighty years or more. Wow. Well, this has been great, man. This is very enlightening and uh, very eye-opening. And I'm sure a lot of, uh, I, I know a lot of engineers, a lot of producers are probably completely unaware of this. So I'm really glad that we had this opportunity to talk. So, yeah, I think, I think the other thing is that, I mean, I know as a producer when I was, you know, until I joined the recording Academy, I wasn't really aware of sound exchange, you know, and, and one of the first things that I got to do as a member of the Academy is I, I went to Washington, D.C., because um, we have a, a, an event every year called Grammys on the Hill, where we actually send our members to the halls of Congress to meet with representatives. And when I did that, I got I, I learned what sound exchange was. I learned, you know, I learned kind of how the lay of the land and all this stuff. But that there are places that you can get paid that you're just unaware of. And, you know, sound exchange, if you're not aware of it as a producer or an engineer, you should go on their website, website soundexchange.com and, and learn about it. And then also, you know, I'll just do a little pitch for the organization that I work for, which I believe 
even, you know, go on GrammyPro.com and, and learn about membership because the, the Recording Academy is the only organization who looks out for all music creators. So we're not a trade group that represents publishers. We're not a trade group that does broadcasters or labels or any of that stuff. We're not the RIAA. We represent the actual creative people. We're the only organization doing that. And if you join the Academy, you have a lobbyist for artists and for producers. Like there's nobody else doing that. And that's why I jumped the fence from being producer to being, you know, working for this organization that just does so much, so much cool stuff. And, and it's getting bigger. It's becoming a bigger part of what we do is advocating for artists. But it also matters to you because you still play, you still record and produce. So yeah. it's not like you yeah. completely abandon this part of the world. Oh, no, no. And in fact, I mean, most most everybody that works for the organization is, is a musician. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty amazing place to be. And I'm a songwriter. I'm, I'm a producer. I'm a, I've been a touring artist and I still play shows. And, and it's important to, to kind of like both look out for your own interests. And even it's just a matter of being a member, but to know that you're part of somebody that's looking out for your interests. Like we're, 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 we're like David's toe in a David Goliath as producers and artists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were up against massive, massive, very well-funded interests who make a bunch of money off of what we do. And we're all a bunch of independent operators, which, which is great on an individual basis where you have the freedom to be, you know, whatever you want with your career. But if you want to stand up against folks like Google or Pandora or YouTube and Spotify and all these other groups that, that are really trying to pay as little as possible as part of their business model, you need to be part of something bigger to help challenge that. And that's, yeah. that's, that's what we're here for. The message here is, is sign up for, uh, go to Grammy Pro, sign up. Uh, definitely. I mean, you're, you're either at the table or on the menu, as they say. That's it. <laughs> that's exactly it. <laughs> well, Awesome. Good to see you, man, and yeah. uh, good, good to talk to you. And thank, thanks again for coming on the show and explaining this. I think it's going to be very helpful. And uh, yeah, it looks like a beautiful day out there where you're at. So yeah, uh, yeah. Well, thanks, thanks for having me on here. And yeah. uh, I know you have mad skills, but if, you know, feel free to call me back if we uh, <laughs> if we need to do some do some loop edits or whatever. Oh yeah, I'll, yeah, sure. I'll, it's okay, man. I'll auto tune you to death. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, and beat detective. <laughs> Put a stutter edit on me every like fifth syllable. That'd be cool. Actually, I was going to DS you to death and give you a lisp. <laughs> Love it. I'll An auto tuned lisp. Yeah, do it all. Let's let's okay. do it. All right, man. Well, uh, say hello to anybody I may know there, and uh, I will talk to you later. Thanks again. All right, sounds good, man. Thanks a lot. All right, see ya. Okay, super duper informative to talk to talk to Mr. Winger there about uh, those particular bills and. I would suggest if you want to keep track of what's going on with those, you can go to www.govtrack.us and uh, or you can always Google HR 1457 Allocation for Music Producers Act if you want to do that. But uh, when you do go over to that uh, govtrack.us site, you can uh, there's a little button that says track this bill and you can get updates on what's happening, where it stands, whether it's, you know, being introduced or uh, reported by committee or whether it's passed the House, passed the Senate, or whether it's being enacted by uh, the president signing it. So that's that. That's, you know, a little little U.S. government here in the Working Class Audio podcast today. So that's it. Uh, Let's get on over and have our conversation with Ryan Hewitt, and then I'll catch up with you, of course, on the, the back end of the conversation. Ryan Hewitt here on Working Class Audio. Welcome 
to the podcast and thanks for doing this. Your dad was David Hewitt and yes. he was a recording engineer. Yep. And he, yeah, he does all remote stuff. And does he still work to this day? Yeah, he's still working. He's sort of semi-retired. Okay. Um, but, you know, he goes out on occasion to do, uh, you know, more live shows when people want him out. You know, that's a fascinating thing for me to know somebody who has a father who is a recording engineer. I guess it's a different way of growing up because, like, my dad was a an electrical engineer working on defense stuff. So very different messages coming from my dad. I love my dad. He's, he's a great man, but, um, different, different mentality, a uh, different, uh, different way of parent. I'm, I'm sure a different way of parenting, but also ultimately the fact that you went into recording, uh, shows that uh, you obviously had a good relationship with your father growing up and he was inspirational to you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Cause I would imagine your dad was like saying, Hey, come and do this. This is, this is a good career. It's, it's a solid living. It's, um, it's interesting. It uses your brain. And my dad the whole time was like, uh, he kept saying to me, you don't really want to do this. This is a tough life. This is a difficult life. You can see how much I'm away from home. And he was gone a lot of my childhood because people actually spent money on live recordings back then. He'd go out for, you know, weeks and months at a time with, um, you know, the Rolling Stones and U2 and Bruce Springsteen and stuff like that. There were, there were times where I wouldn't see him for a couple months. I mean, I didn't know anything about that as a child, of course, because it's like you're just doing your thing and dad's off doing cool stuff. I suppose in retrospect, it maybe it was difficult, but I, I still loved my childhood and I loved whenever my dad was home and whenever we got to work together, we had a really great time. So I started working for him on the truck when I was 12 years old, just detailing the console and cleaning the wheels and the fuel tanks and, you know, just tidying things up. And then he taught me how to solder and eventually let me sit behind the console and, you know, learn how to thread the tape machine. And, you know, he would talk to me about what he's listening for and, and how he thinks about music and audio and things like that. So I, I learned in a very different way, I suppose, than, than a lot of guys who are doing this today. Wow. To learn at such a young age, just that just blows my mind. It's just a whole nother concept. I don't I think you're the only person I know that got in that way. Yeah, there's 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 not a whole lot of other father son teams. I know. Um, I mean, there's there's a handful. There's Kyle and Jason Lenning down here in Nashville, mm -hmm. you know, sort of father son producers. And I, oh, the name is escaping me. Why is uh, Ed Stasium and Jason Stasium? Um, also father son, you know, engineers, producers and and all that. And and both of those Jason, they're doing quite well. So it's it's really cool to see other other guys getting into it because they're dads. I think that the major sort of differentiation for me is working on that, working on the remote truck, you know, doing all live recording. And of course, it was all analog back then, API console and Ampex tape machines. And like the, the, the thought and the process that goes into that, I feel like really prepared me to do things differently in the studio to, hmm. to, you know, to, to have always have that, to have that escape path. You know, my dad was always about having the backup ready. Like if there was, if there was wireless vocal mics, there was an extra two or three sitting on the side of the stage because he just couldn't deal with something going down in the middle of the show and, and, you know, having to actually scramble for something. It's like, all right, dude walks out. Here's another microphone. No problem. When he started recording digitally on 3348s, you know, he would have like a, a vocal track and then a compressed vocal track so that 
if the vocal track clipped, he'd have the compressed one that he could slide in there and, and it wouldn't be uh, distorted sounding. So he was um, he just definitely prepared. And when I went into the studio, I worked with Jim Scott a lot when I moved to Los Angeles and he came off the record plant remote trucks uh, on the West Coast and did the same thing in the studio. He'd have an extra DI sitting around. He'd have extra 57s sitting around in the studio. So if someone wanted to do a percussion overdub or someone else suddenly walked in with another guitar, he'd be ready and it'd be patched into the console, into tape and ready to go at a moment's notice. So we didn't have to screw around trying to figure something else out. So it, it's an interesting sort of background and a different way to approach being prepared in the studio and, and being ready for anything. You later went on to Tufts University, right? Mm -hmm. What'd you get your degree in? Well, uh, I got a degree in electrical engineering, actually. Mm -hmm. And it was only because my father said, you've got to go and get a real education. If you want to do this, you know, if you want to be in the recording business, that's fine. I'll, I'll help you out with that. You can learn everything you need to learn in a studio or in a truck. And, you know, but you need to have some basic knowledge of what's actually going on in these consoles, in this gear between all these things, you need to know about impedances and you need to know about electrons and transistors and, you know, all the things that we take for granted in these desks and in these boxes that are sitting behind me. Um, if you know something more about that, you'll have a better understanding of what's actually happening, what you're doing and how what you're doing affects what's happening in those wires and boxes and things. So that was fun. And the irony of that is that when I went to school, um, I got more interested in recording because I hated going to class. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I, I was just like, oh, I'm never going to sit in front of a computer all day for the rest of my life. That sucks. <laughs> um, so, of course, here we are sitting in front of computers every day, sitting in chairs and all the problems associated with that, as are my friends designing missile systems for Raytheon and designing software for big companies all over the world that I went to school with. And so I would go to class. I did fine in school. Somehow I graduated um, with a decent average. And every night and on weekends, I would be doing demos for bands. Mm. So we had a, like a campus sound company that I took over and I, I became like the head guy at the sound company, of course, like super nerdy. And I made them buy a Mackie because I was state of the art in 1992. So we got a Mackie 24-8 and my dad gave me an old DAT machine. And I would just sit and do live to DAT recordings of all the bands on campus. Um, oh, what a, what training. Then, yeah, it was, it was really fun. And then I did front of house for lots of bands that went on to some success and, and, you know, did a little bit of studio work in Boston and, you know, had a really good time. And, and that, that really made me catch the bug if I didn't already have it in, you know, from high school working with my dad. But once I finished college, I'm like, all right, there's, I'm going straight to New York city. I'm, this is my job. This is what I want to do. I would assume that you would think it's an obvious question, but with a dad in the industry, Obviously, that helped because he knew people and that allowed you to make some introductions or at least say, oh, maybe, you know, my dad. Right. It's it's funny. Um, I will never forget the day. There was a day in junior high school in ninth grade where I was bragging on my dad. I was like, oh, my dad's out with you, too, or something like that. And my friend turned to me and says, no one gives a fuck what your dad's doing. No one fucking cares. And so from that moment on, I didn't talk about it unless unless I was in a sticky situation where someone was getting upset or something was weird or someone was an asshole to me, it's like, Oh, you might know my father. And that's really the only time I use it. Um, <laughs> it use his reference. And now people go up to him and say, Oh, are you Ryan's dad? Oh man. <laughs> so the tide has turned a little bit, which is sort of gratifying, but yeah, I mean, you know, and yes, to be fair, he, he did make 
introductions for me when I was you know, when I was in college. He helped me get an internship at um, at Sony Studios in New York uh-huh. uh, through Paul Sloman, the studio manager. He he managed Sony Studios in the '90s and previously was at um, Record Plant in New York and A and M in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So he he'd been all over the place, and I knew Paul since I was a kid. And uh, he helped me get the internship there, and then I worked my ass off so that they would hire me. <laughs> uh, and so I became a runner at Sony for five bucks an hour after spending a hundred grand on a college education, <laughs> and. You know, but it, it's the same old thing. I had I had to do the same crap everyone else did. I was, you know, cleaning up and doing all the sort of menial tasks that need to be done in the studio. Thankfully, they had a cleaning crew there. We didn't have to do the toilets. But um, after cleaning wheels for 10 years, it's it's uh, uh, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, at least you had a you had a passion for it. You were interested and um, your dad did what any parent would do. I mean, if my kids ever want to do anything like that, I will certainly help them. And I would expect other parents to do the same. So no slight there, no judgment there whatsoever. Yeah. But I'm just curious if that was the case. Oh, it, it was, I, I feel very, very lucky. I'm very fortunate. Um, it, it was interesting because some other, you know, Sony execs had their kids set up with internships too. They didn't last six months. They were all, they all fell out. No mm-hmm. one, no one really got anywhere. But, you know, even even if you walk in the door having, you know, been introduced or having known someone in there, you still got to work really hard to get anywhere in this business, you know, to to get where we are sitting behind consoles and making records with with really talented people takes work from the very beginning. You can't just really drop into this stuff. Find it fascinating. <laughs> Were you ever given advice that directed you to go to New York or L.A. knowing full well that those are meccas for you know production and and or or record making or or did did you i guess see i came to san francisco from southern new mexico thinking that that was the way to go and it was for a period of time but eventually san francisco was not a primary market and is even worse than it was way back when but i think if somebody had told me early on you know what maybe you should go to la or maybe you should go to new york did you just know that or did your dad say, son, you need to go to these places if you're going to do this? I think it was just because of familiarity. I was I was born in New York City and then we moved to suburban New York after that. But it, it was I, I, I knew the lay of the land in New York and, you know, going to the studio with my father when I was a kid. I just knew what was going on there. And I always imagined myself and I, I feel like I still consider myself a New Yorker even though I lived in Los Angeles for 16 years and I've just moved to Nashville this year, I still, you know, I'm from New York and I know that city. I always wanted to live there when I was a kid. I just always imagined, I don't know, having a great time because the the studios in New York that were still there in the nineties when I was coming up were incredible. The hit factory, power station, electric lady, magic shop, you know, Sony was incredible. Record plant was well, still hanging on, I guess, in the late 80s. But it, w- it was a really great scene. There was lots of music happening. Everyone wanted to be in New York. And, you know, then 9-11 happened and it all sort of fell to shit. And the, the city started to decline a bit. And um, studios had certainly already been in decline since then. But it's it's great to see the resurgence that's happening over there now, too. Like with Joel Hamilton out at Studio G in Brooklyn and um, Brooklyn Recorders. And, and there's a few places out there in like Red Hook and whatever that are that are supposed to be pretty rad. I haven't recorded in New York in years, but it, it's cool to see it 
sort of coming back and people still carrying the torch there. How long did you spend in Los Angeles? I was there for 16 years and I got to LA. I decided coming home from a trip to, to California to visit my mother that I was done with New York after six years. I, I just got, I just decided like, oh, I'm tired of this. This is boring. And the next day I got a phone call from SSL to take a job in Los Angeles, literally the next day. So I flew out and they offered me the job. You know, I did the job for a few weeks as a product specialist for SSL 9000s, which were still fairly new at the time. And they offered me the job full time, went home, got my stuff and moved to LA, <laughs> never looked back. And it was so much fun. It was an incredible period in LA, like just great records, great studios. And I, I yeah, I couldn't have asked for a better 16 years of, of work and play and fun and excitement out there. Did you find the, uh, the differences between New York and LA in terms of uh, recording and recording culture, anything that, that sticks out to you about those two different cities? I mean, you know, after living in New York for, for whatever it was, for six, six years, um, L.A. certainly felt more relaxed. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I can tell you the moment I got sick of L.A. was when I, or sick of New York was when I was walking down Broadway on like a Tuesday afternoon smoking a joint and people kept bumping into me. I'm like, where the fuck are you going? What's the, what are you in a hurry for? It's nice outside. Chill out. <laughs> and then I was just like, God, oh, this is just too much. I don't, I don't need this anymore. I gotta, I gotta slow down and, and have some fun for a minute. And so when I went to LA, it was, it was definitely, it's a hustle. You know, this business is a hustle, no matter what your role in it is, but it was, it was a little more relaxed. There was a lot more rock and roll, all the kind of music I wanted to do was in LA. And, you know, I found the people to be friendly and welcoming and, and, um, I, I had tons of opportunities and, Lots of fun and, and made lots of really great records out there. But now you're in Nashville. Yes. What drove that decision to move out there? Well, I felt I started to feel the same way about Los Angeles that I did about New York when mm -hmm. I left. So, you know, the traffic was unbearable. Um, studios are closing. Uh, people, there's just a diaspora. You know, everyone's just hanging out in their home, in, in their house, and you never see anyone. I see more people from Los Angeles now that I'm in Nashville than I did when they lived down the street from me. It's weird. And, wow. you know, of course, it's a two-way street. I'm, I, will, I certainly don't say that it's anyone else's fault. Um, but the, the, the community in New York in the 90s was very tight. Like, you'd, you'd leave the studio. Even if it was one or two in the morning, you could call someone up and go out for a drink. Um, the studios were very close to each other, so you'd see people walk into work. You can go and pop in, say hello, see what's happening. In L.A., it's gotten so spread out and so... Um, diverse and segmented that you don't see people. I'm, I'm a social guy. I like to hang out and be around people, say hello, see what else people are up to, what new things are happening, like how people are working and, and, and just do things and, and have fun. And it, it was just such a pain in the ass to, to, to get together with people. Yeah. You know, it, 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 socializing shouldn't be a chore. It should be fun. And I have no problem driving an hour to see people, you know, but it's like, an hour to go three miles. Come on. You know, it's, it's just too much. And, you know, and, and plus just like, you know, just like leaving New York for LA, I was up for a new challenge. Um, I needed a new scene and, and just, I, I needed it like a, a kickstart jumpstart to my life. So, you know, what better way to do that than to move. And to move to Nashville where, holy crap, people are recording and making music. There's a, there's an ecosystem in full swing. Yeah. How long have you been there? So I've, uh, I moved my studio here in November 
uh, very quietly from Los Angeles. And we've, uh, my girlfriend Katie moved down here in January with me. Uh, we moved our house cross country in January. It's pretty exciting. And it, you know, the, the community here is really tight and, and close and small. And there's, there's fantastic musicians just like in LA and fantastic engineers and producers and, you know, editors, the whole, the whole gamut is here just like in Los Angeles, except that it's like, they're all down the street from me. <laughs> right. You know, so yesterday there was an event at, uh, across the street at House of Blues Studio A. Um, the Burl guys came in from Santa Cruz and Stephen Slate was here and, you know, Vance Powell's up the street, Richard Dodd's up the street, Blackbird's down the road, uh, Addiction Studios is down the road, Marshall Altman's down the road. All my friends are like within a couple miles. And, yeah. you know, and people like hang out. The The event the other night turned into going out for sushi and cocktails. Um and that happens in LA, of course, no problem. But uh, it's, I don't know, it's, it's new and exciting. And so it's, it's fun. That's wow. Wow. <laughs> Culturally, um, even though you have experience and you have some name recognition, uh, being the new guy coming to town, do you face, do you feel like, oh, okay, I still need to simmer here a bit and, and, and get ingrained in it? Because uh, my impression of Nashville is you can't just be, the West coast guy coming in and invading and that they, they frown upon that in Nashville. Well, I mean, you know, I've met a lot of, a lot of guys of different, you know, ages and, and abilities and, you know, genres, if you will. And first of all, everyone has been extremely welcoming. You know, the Southern hospitality thing is in full effect and, you know, I'm not here to steal their gigs. I don't, I don't, I'm not here on a mission to, to take other people's work or, you know, do, country music or, or what have you, you know, thankfully my clients have followed me here. Um, people have come down to mix and record and I'm just doing my thing. You know, I'm, I'm just over here having fun and just trying to fit in with the community and, and, you know, do great work. You know, if, if someone wants to call me and do a, do a record that's, that's a local country star or something, of course I would do it. If they had used my friend before me, I would call my friend and say, Hey, your client called me you know, what's the story. Mm. And, and, um, and just, you know, I would reach out to, to my friend who had worked with that artist before and say, Hey, what's, what's the deal here? Um, is this, is this cool or is this not cool? And, and, you know, have a conversation about it. And, uh, these things come up, you know, I've had, I've had friends who work with clients I used to work with and that's just, uh, sometimes it's how it goes, but it's all in how it's handled. I think, um, mm. the, the sort of, you know, how, what, what your, your morals and ethics dictate in your behavior. So I, I've been on both sides of the, of that coin. And sometimes I've handled it correct. Sometimes I've handled it well. Sometimes I've not handled it well. When I don't handle it well, I get upset, you know, cause it's, it's, uh, it, it's important to, to do the right thing and to, to be kind and courteous and, and share, uh, in work and just, you know, just be a stand up human being and, Make sure you're doing doing well by yourself and by your code and and by your friends. Let's say somebody comes to you and you know they've been working with somebody else for years. Would you take the time to call the other producer engineer and say, "Hey, so and so's come to my door. What's uh, what's the story?" Yeah, I mean, I think you have to. If a band you've been, you know, if a band that calls you, if a client calls you, and they've been working with someone else for five years and several albums, let's say. Um, it's, and you know that it's your due diligence to call your friend if he is indeed a friend and 
say, hey, you know, these guys called me. Can you know what's the scene? Uh, do I have your blessing? You know, how do you how do you feel about this? Whatever, you know. And there, there's everyone approaches that in their own style. You know, I've had people just tell me, hey, I'm working with this band. Go fuck yourself. Um, and I've had other people say like, hey, uh, you know, I know you have a relationship with this band, but they called me or you know the producer called me to work on this. You know, is that okay? And it's like, well, of course, they called you. That's that's great. You know, you're my buddy. Go, go, you know, with my blessing and, and not that you need it, but go make a great record because at the end of the day, it's like, what are we going to do? We're going to call that, that, are we going to call that client and alienate ourselves further? You know, who knows why they didn't call, you know, maybe they just want to do something different or, you know, they had some problem that you don't know about or, you know, who knows? There's, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of reasons for changing artistic directions and, relationships with people in this business. And, uh, yeah, I've been on all different sides of those things. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting life. It's just, you know, it's just like your social life. Sometimes you're friends with people forever and sometimes you just sort of drift apart. And I think the same sort of thing can happen artistically, um, with what we do. I've encountered situations sometimes where I've, or I've observed other engineers get territorial with mm -hmm. an artist, you know, in retrospect, I keep thinking, wow, that's not fair. I mean, the artist goes where the artist wants to go. You can't cage them in. They're, they're. I, I mean, to me, that kind of thinking is is um, counterproductive, and it, it instills a false confidence because, yeah, you don't know what that person's going to do. I mean, I have an artist I made ten records with, and then all of a sudden, I'm, he doesn't call me anymore, and it's like, okay, well, I guess I don't need to make eleven records with that guy. You know, uh, it's on to something different and and new. And to me, when one door shuts, another opens, you know, uh, if, yeah, it's, it's that simple to me. Okay. So you said you moved your studio there and that actually brings up a question from, uh, this is a Facebook question from Jeremy Wurst, uh, it says, uh, I'd like to know why he transitioned from mixing at home to having the overhead of a studio seems a little backwards to what a lot of guys are doing, whether it was just client demand for space, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's a number of reasons really. Um, you know, I touched upon it earlier. I I'm social. I like to, you know, hang out, interact with people on, on in this business in, in many different ways. And when you have a studio at home, uh, you're cut off from the rest of the world in a lot of cases. So there's one reason. The second reason is I don't want people in my house. I love my clients dearly. They, I get to be very good friends with everybody I work with for the most part, but I don't need them in my house, you know, hanging out in my personal space, especially when my girlfriend's trying to sleep or write or study or meditate or, or whatever. And if someone's in my kitchen while they're waiting for a mix and they're typing away on their laptop or just taking up space and, and doing whatever, it's, it's just a little, that's when it crosses the line. You know, I can imagine having a place in my backyard that would be fantastic. A lot of my friends have that. But at the same time, I need to get out of my house. I want to go away. I want to be somewhere else so that I'm when I'm at work, I'm at work. And when I'm at home, I'm at home. So there's reason number two. Reason number three is I wanted to be able to have more space to do recording. And certainly in Los Angeles, that's difficult to find and very expensive to build here in Nashville it's a bit cheaper and a little bit easier to find. So I have that and I've got, you know, a nice kitchen and a lounge for people to hang out in. I can leave and my assistant can be here all hours of the night printing stems and preparing mixes and doing 
things that I don't need to be thinking about when I'm having dinner with my girl or when I'm out with my friends or whatever, you know, and it, it makes, it makes the delineation between work and home, you know, work and personal larger. And I needed that, you know, after, I think I had my home studio in Venice for six years and it just got to the point where I couldn't, it was really hard to get anything done because I was always called off to do things for the house or like go and do an errand. It just, it was easier to not work. I could just go upstairs and, you know, the formula one race was on or, you know, Katie's watching TV and I'm going to join in or, Oh, I'm just going to go cook myself dinner. And all of a sudden three hours are gone. Um, whereas here I can be a bit more focused on what I'm doing, get it done, go home and enjoy myself. So it's, it's, um, it's a big, it's a big difference to me. So where, where is your studio? Are you, are you in a building with other people? Well, I have, I have a, a house that is a studio at House of Blues. So I have their Studio C that I've leased out. And it's, you know, it's a little old house that they've turned into a, a studio. So I got a big control room, a couple of nice booths, a kitchen, full bathroom and an office and a lounge. And it's, it's awesome. I have a porch outside and a, a backyard that I can hang out in and barbecue. It's the perfect combination of, of studio sound with the vibe of just being in someone's home. You're leasing. You do not own this building. No, I, I don't own it. Okay. Do you own a home or lease a home? Uh, I'm leasing a home right now here in, here in Nashville, but, uh, you know, with an eye towards buying something. Yeah. Okay. As, as you get to know the lay of the land and get comfortable. Sure. And, and I, I brought this up uh, in previous podcasts with somebody, because uh, it really stuck with me. Sylvia Massey talked about, she said, whenever you move somewhere, it generally takes about two years to really get in and really get your feet planted. Do you, do you feel that's true? Are you in that phase? It, it's interesting. I mean, I guess I've moved a bunch through my lifetime and, and I'd say, yeah, I mean, it probably takes a couple of years to get ingrained in the, in the fabric of the community, you know, for real, whether you feel that way or not. I mean, you know, it just takes a while to get the lay of the land and figure out where everything is and get all your resources that you've had in your previous home that, you know, of 16 years, I knew where everything was in LA. I could go to, I knew where all my favorite restaurants were and all the suppliers I needed this like place for this, this place for this, you get the best peaches at this farmer's market in this month of the year. And, you know, you know, all these little tiny details over the course of establishing your life somewhere. And here, you know, I've been here six months and I certainly don't have that. I know a lot of people and I know the people to call to ask questions at this point. But uh, yeah, it, it takes quite a while to get entrenched in a, in a place. And, you know, with the amount that we work and we sit here looking at our computer screens and listening to music, it's difficult to get into that fabric um, as deeply and as quickly as you might if you didn't have to work as much. <laughs> right. Do you have a manager? I do. Okay. And has that been a long-term relationship with that manager? Uh, I've been with, uh, I'm with Darren Harmon at Bill Silva and we've been together, I guess, for, I don't know, five, six years, something like that. And I've heard a range of opinions from everybody that I've talked to, uh, about management from, you know, Vance and Ross and, and, uh, Andrew and Sylvia. Um, so What's your thought on management? I mean, you have a manager. It's worth it's it's obviously you continue to, so it seems like you must enjoy that relationship. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a number of, of reasons, pro and con. Um, I mean, obviously con, that fifteen percent can be a lot of money. And, you know, it's sometimes it's difficult to to justify that. And so, you know, you you 
deal with your manager and you make sure he's pulling his weight, you know, make sure he's making you 15% more in all, in all matters, getting you 15% more work, 15% more money. So that at least he's covering himself. You know, I, I like Darren, he works hard for me and, you know, brings things to the table and helps get me more money and get better deals and, you know, makes, makes a lot of things happening, happen and opens doors. Most importantly, you know, his, he's been in this business quite a while and, and knows a lot of people and can make phone calls for me if I want to work with someone or have something to play for an A&R guy or a publishing person. He can help, you know, get me through the the sort of red tape and, and get me in the door, which is great. The other great reason to have a manager is to not have to deal with business with the artist. You know, when you walk into the studio, it should just be music and fun and talking about what you're doing, not who's paying for what and how much money you're getting and, you know, what your points are and blah, 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 all these little intricate details. It's like, that's why we have our people behind the scenes that deal with their people behind the scenes and face to face with the artist. Everything can be cool. Everything could be about music and art and, and fun and excitement. And the people in the back can go and deal with that stuff. I've seen people have success with that. And I've seen people flounder with it and, and be assholes and, and aggressive and, and mean and, and passive aggressive and all these other, you know, potentially horrible characteristics. But, um, you know, I, I like to think that I'm a good guy and a, and a fair person and a, um, a nice guy. And I like to maintain that if, if I need to be a dick, you know, I have someone who can do that for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have you know, a, quite frankly, <laughs> you have a hired dick. I, I have a dude who can go and be a jerk right. and can, and can, you be like, look, this is the fucking way it is. And it's not going to happen like this. And you're going to pay for that. And his time is up and we're not doing this until you do that. And, you know, he can, he can go and, and be a jerk and I can still look like the good guy. I can blame things on him and, and, you know, but that's, that's his job. That's, that's what they're there for. Right. And well, and the, I'm sure the artists you're dealing with most, you know, those that have managers have that same thing. Yeah. I mean, the only time I've had an issue with an artist is when they didn't have a manager and they, you know, there was, we were negotiating a deal and they were doing it themselves, talking to my manager and they were just like, well, you know, what the fuck is this? You, you said you weren't going to do this. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't, I don't, I didn't, you know, this, let's discuss this. This is blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, this is business. You know, this is a negotiation. Everything's in negotiation. You know, you can ask for what you want and, the worst they can do is say no. Do you feel you could do it without a manager? I've done some things. I negotiate some of my work by myself just because I know the producer that I'm working for or uh, I'm comfortable with someone. I can just throw something out. Um, certainly the older I get, the more confident I am in, in my, my value and my skills. And so, you know, I'm a little, I, I just turned 40 last year and I'm certainly a lot less tolerant of bullshit at this point in my life, you know, it's like if someone wants to screw around with negotiations or, or just playing games, I, I just, you know, I, I, I'm too old for that. Not that I'm too old for that. Shit. I don't want to sound like a jaded old man, but it's like, I just don't have patience for that anymore. I used to endure it and, and entertain it. But now I'm just like, do you want to make a record? Or do you not want to make a record? You know? Right. Like, right. This is time. And this is, you know, what we do. And, you know, I love your music. Let's do this. You know, when did you get a manager? Did, was there a pivotal point? Was there a, were you approached? Did you approach them? The first manager I had man, handled a band that I did a demo for and he loved what I did. And he just said, you know, do you have a manager? I'd like to handle you and get you more work and help you out. And I'm like, oh, okay, sure. 
And that guy did absolutely nothing for me other than, you know, act as a post office and send out invoices, which I'd already been doing my entire life. So I fired him. And then along came another guy who, who wanted to manage me. And we got along great for a while. He, he brought me an occasional gig and um, at one point gave me very bad advice. And I didn't follow it, thankfully. And I did the Red Hot Chili Peppers record instead of what he told me to do. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, and um, so, you know, some, some things happened and, and we decided not to work together again. And I went for about a year without a manager just handling my own stuff. And, and it was fine. I mean, I, I think I did it initially out of a desire to let other people handle that stuff and, and be the jerk. Cause I couldn't fathom asking for more money or just asking for what I want, which again, with age and experience, you learn to just say, this is what I want. And you learn to say no, if, if it's not what you want. You know, if, if you say I want X and someone offers you a, you're like, well, no, there's a very big gulf between a and X, you know, it, it, you know, regardless, whether it's artistic or a place in time or money or, or whatever, any kind of, uh, anything that surrounds doing a project together. If, if you're on one end of the table and they're on the complete opposite, you know, there's obviously a room for negotiation, but if you're on polar opposite sides of what's going to happen, then then it's just say no and walk away. To me, to a lot of people that don't have a manager, it just seems like this. Uh, I don't. I don't want to say unobtainable thing, but it just seems like this mysterious thing. Like somebody else is going to take care of my shit. That's weird. <laughs> it, it's it's a little strange, and it takes trust in the other person. But, you know, it, it's not like that guy's autonomous. He's not just out there on his own boat trying to make yours float. But, you know, it's a constant dialogue. And, and you know, I, I have trusted that he's out there doing the right thing and representing me correctly. And, you know, I, I investigate that on a regular basis to make sure that the perception of, of me and my business and, and he and his business are all positive. I like that. It's, I mean, it's, it, it sounds attractive to me. I would love it, but... Um... <laughs> There, there are days where I wish I didn't have it, and there are days where I wish I had more. You know? <laughs> so it, it goes back and forth. Um, I want to jump topics for a sec over to gear because I'm looking at some of these oh. questions off Facebook. This one question from Jonathan McMillan, what's the most underwhelming piece of, ex- piece of expensive gear you have purchased? Well, I mean, thankfully, I don't think I've ever purchased anything underwhelming other than Pro Tools. Um you know, all the gear that I have, um, I've investigated thoroughly before I bought it. And so things, if anything, it's better than what I had hoped for. So it's pretty exciting. I mean, uh, yeah, I think, I think pro tools as a whole is the only thing that's underwhelming because it always fucks up. (laughs) But I mean, at the same time, it's a, it's a fantastic piece of, of software. It, 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 I couldn't, you know, couldn't do what I do without it really. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's still a pain in my ass. This, uh, (laughs) This guy Jason Fee asks, uh, "Would it be int- it would be interesting to know if you feel that your electrical engineering background ever gave you a leg up at any point in your career?" Um, well, it, it's interesting because a lot of kids coming out of recording school and and kids coming out of bedroom studios don't understand rudimentary um, electronics, like even signal flow baffles a lot of aspiring engineers and 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 you know, they don't think about the order in which you even even the order in which you put processing and how that affects things. They don't understand. Like, I mean, not that I have intimate knowledge of any of this stuff, really. I mean, I went to school 
almost 20 years ago and and I've forgotten a lot of the things that I learned. Um, but to, to understand what slew rate is and how different transistors, different op amps will affect your signal and your sound and, and you know, um, again, like what's going on in these equalizers? What are these resistor capacitor networks? Why does a, a EQ with coils in it sound differently than an EQ with chips in it? What are the advantages of discrete versus printed circuit boards? You know, all, all these sort of questions that, that people on, you know, various forums will, will spout off about this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, okay, well, why? Why is that? Why is it distorting at this level and not that level? Why is hmm. this power supply better than this one? Why is this wire better than that wire? Why does this wire sound different than that wire? Why is it better to have fewer connections? And uh, why is it important to clean your connectors and use the best things that you can? You know, there's there's so many questions that can be answered by a little bit of electronics knowledge, and and I definitely feel that it's it's helped me in my career. Could I point to one specific example? Not really, but just the overall way of thinking about problem solving. I think is probably the biggest single factor. You know, mm -hmm. uh, being able to troubleshoot things in any sense, really, from you know studio stuff to opening a, a box and finding the, you know, a broken wire or, you know, opening the hood of your car and being able to just deduce from, you know, beginning to end what, where the problem lies in a certain system. Uh, Ian Combs asks, be interesting to hear how he deals with the logistics of carting his gear to the many places he works out of or what he will absolutely not leave home without. <laughs> um, well, you know, having, it was interesting before I had my, my own studio, people actually had money for cartage and, you know, I had my racks and, and, you know, multi-pair cables with Elko connectors and patch bays and my own patch cords that I could bring. So I wouldn't run out and I would set up my big racks, plug in a couple cables and it was ready to go. You know, I, I wired everything myself for the most part and make sure everything is working properly. And as soon as if I can roll into a studio and just throw a few big cables on and be ready to go. I'm, I'm happy. But, and I, and it's funny cause I built my studio at home with the ability to take everything apart very quickly, throw it on a truck and go and do a gig. And I think in the six years that I had my studio in Venice, I took my racks out once. And certainly since I've been here, I haven't taken them out at all. But what I do have is I have some small racks with my preamps in them. So I have like a rack of, you know, like a six space rack with a bunch of APIs in it. And I got a six space rack with some electrodynes and a, and a, a roots, you know, the, what's it called? The tree audio branch thing. Mm -hmm. So I can throw those in the trunk of my little car and take them wherever I go. And then I you know, I've got some little Pelican cases for my microphones and things like that. And so what I don't leave with, if I can help it is I, I bring a handful of preamps that I love and I know I can get great sounds with, and I bring, you know, two boxes of my favorite microphones. Hmm. So that's about all I really travel with. And I always ask this question as far as uh, the economics of playing it smart with or playing it dumb, depending on, you know, your feeling about it with buying gear and not overspending. A lot of people go into very deep credit card debt to, <laughs> you know, to buy gear. Yeah. Um, I don't do that. Don't do that. I mean, I'm, I've <laughs> been one of that. them. <laughs> Me too. And, and I told my, I had an assistant for a while that, you know, I knew what he made cause I paid him and, you know, he'd come in with this, this new thing and that new thing and a new car. I'm just like, bro, I've been there. Don't do that. It will hurt you for a long time. Yes. You'll have a ton of gear. 
you might have to sell some of it. You might have to, you know, you're paying more for it in the long run if you put it on your credit card. You know, there's there's no piece of gear that's a magic bullet. There's no piece of gear that you have to have, says the guy with the pile of crap behind him. But it's interesting. I, I, I had this thought a minute ago when you started asking this question. The two guys that I assisted when I was first starting that I really, really admired and still do to this day was uh, Michael Brower and Elliot Shiner. Mm-hmm. And the difference is, or I mean, there's many differences between how they work and, and who they are and all that. But the, the, the difference on the surface is you'll see a picture of Michael with his six racks of all this stuff that is stunning. It's all impeccably maintained, customized, hot rotted, you know, custom sprayed, all this stuff. It's just a beautiful collection of gear that he loves to use to get his sounds. And Elliot walked in with nothing. He would look at the gear, at the rack and be like, okay, we'll use this, this, and this. Uh, okay, we'll have to rent one of these because I, I, I really want to have that for the vocal. And oh yeah, Rev7, fine, SPX90, fine. Uh, okay, yeah, patch these four things and let's get started. And he would just mix the record with, you know, I think we literally, I have my book somewhere, I could tell you exactly what we used, but I think we had two reverbs, two delays, maybe six outboard compressors and a stereo bus compressor. And that was it. And it was on an EVR. He just used the EQ and compressors on the desk for most of the tracks. And that was that. And same thing with Bruce Wadian. You know, I think we had four inserts, two reverbs and two echoes done. Wow. So there's so many ways to skin a cat. Um, And with the number of plugins that we can have in the box, the number of instances of all these things that we have in the box, there's no have to have, there's no real must have piece of gear, you know? Do you embrace the uh, in the box mixing at all? Um, I mean, I have the the quote unquote hybrid setup. I have a, a couple different summing boxes, and you know, I use some outboard gear on the way in, and I use lots of plugins. It's it's sort of um, I, I get to use the best of both worlds, I guess. Mm-hmm. So let let me ask you this: a very common theme that just keeps coming up is diversification to survive. Mm-hmm. Do you feel you've had to diversify a bit to survive or is your life just built in such a way that your overhead isn't that high and you can you can continue doing this as you originally had intended? I, I mean, in terms of like diversification, sure. You know, um, I feel like, you know, I've done consulting work. I've, I've always enjoyed things outside of just sitting behind the desk making records. Mm-hmm. I like building studios. I like making stuff. I have ideas for designs. I like to educate people. And so I've gone into all those arenas at this point. I consult on people's studios. I help them, you know, spend their money wisely on, on the right stuff. You know, I help my friends with studio design. You know, I've, I've got some product ideas that are, that are going to go into development soon, I hope. Um, I've got ideas for software. So, you know, there's I don't think there's any harm in diversifying. Would I start a record label? I don't know about that, Andrew Sheps. Yeah, Andrew, but, uh, you're scaring me I, with that. I so admire what he's doing. I absolutely adore his 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 concept and the the bands he finds, and I buy all the records that he puts out to help him uh, with his endeavor, and I encourage people to do the same. But, you know, if there's another avenue to making money, absolutely. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to have to... Uh, go and be a bartender at this exact moment. But, uh, you know, if that's what I had to do to survive, why not? There's a question from Shane Derek Grush here on Facebook. I don't know anything about this, so you're going to have to enlighten me. <laughs> but he says, I'd be stoked if he could elaborate on his use and opinions of the Delta H Design acoustic products. Are they a game changer? And I read that and I was like, what's that? 
Oh, um, that's some acoustic panels that Hanson Sue um, has made. This He's a guy, uh, an acoustician in L.A. Uh, his company is called Delta H. He makes these little panels, these two-foot-by-two-foot two panels that are pretty game-changing in what they do. I mean, they don't look like much, but the science behind them and what they actually do to a room is is pretty spectacular. So um, I have an NDA on it, so I can't really talk about exactly what they do, but um, I put them in my studio in Venice, which was a good-sounding studio. Um, it had issues. It had, it had lumps in the low end like so many uh, small rooms do. Um, but we put those on the wall and it straightened a lot of them out. It fixed a lot of stuff in a very small space and it's pretty extraordinary. People would come over and their minds would be blown by, uh, what it was doing. You take them away and it's like, you know, it's, it's just a boxy sounding room and you put them up and it's like, Oh, this is, this is pretty spectacular. So they're, they're definitely cool. I don't, I don't, I only have a few of them in my room here in Nashville cause it was already treated and sounded good. So I didn't mess with it too much. Okay. Off to, off to investigate as I'm yeah, sure the audience will like to investigate. And that's not an ad anybody, by the way, that's, that's just no, it, curiosity. He's, he's, yeah. It's curiosity. He's, he's a guy I know. And, and I think he does good work. Um, let's see. Uh, this is an interesting question. Um, from uh, Jonathan McMillan, Richard Dodd was one of the most forward-thinking engineers when it came to the idea of using digital editing to perfect a performance. You worked with him in the early days of the DAW. How far would you guys go with editing a performance? Oh, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, Richard is is one of my heroes. I think he's got some of the greatest ears on the planet, and he's right down the street. We so. Funny. Can I tell a funny story about that? Actually, no, no uh, funny stories. <laughs> no funny stories are so, allowed. Go ahead. So uh, we, when I, I got my assistant job at East at, uh, at Cello in Los Angeles, and I was working for Jim Scott, and we did uh, what was to become Tom Petty's last DJ record. Um, and I think Jim had to go off and do something else, so they brought Richard in to finish the overdubs and to mix the record. And so I got to be his assistant too. You know, yeah, it was the early days of of. I think Pro Tools HD had just come out, maybe. I think we had maybe the first HD rig that I'd ever seen. And I didn't know much about Pro Tools. I, I avoided it like the plague because my opinion at that time was just like, if you're going to do this, if you're going to do a record, you do it on tape. And if you want to edit stuff, you can have someone else do that because that's for that's for losers. And I don't want to do that because that's, that's not making a record in the traditional sense. So I said, screw all that. I'm not doing it. And then all of a sudden, we had a situation where we did strings on Tom's record and it didn't come out the way Tom wanted it. So all of a sudden there was this Pro Tools rig in the room and I'm like, okay, well I can make another $35 an hour if I figure out how to do this. <laughs> and so I, so they're like, yeah, so you can edit, right? I'm like, yeah, I can edit. Absolutely. No problem. And I figured out how to do it on a Tom Petty record. <laughs> wow. And to, uh, and, and I, made some money and I bought gear. <laughs> um, but as far as how far would we go, we, we sort of had to make a new arrangement of the strings without the luxury of having the 40 piece orchestra still in the room. So we were just flying parts around and, um, you know, we sort of made what we could out of, out of what we had. And in the end we used a lot of it and, and Tom was happy and, uh, and I learned how to use pro tools. It was great. And I think, I don't think we really, we didn't tune any vocals on that record, but I think we did do some, I think we had to fly a couple things, um, very, very minor edits on that record. 
most of the most of the editing was on tape like we'd we you know uh i remember on one song we used the same chorus twice and we copied it from one machine to the other and cut it back in on the on the master tape and that was that this is an interesting one jason jason fee on facebook asked you uh he wants to know why why he thinks rick rubin is so successful it's probably the most off the most popular question i'm asked um he there there's he he's very complicated he's very very deep and it, it's interesting i mean i guess i've known rick for 14 years now i met him when i was an assistant at, at cello in 2001 and at that point he didn't talk to anybody he didn't need to talk to so i was the assistant he didn't need to talk to me so he didn't talk to me and you know, here I am in front of this guy who produced my favorite record of all time, Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Chili Peppers. And I just said to myself, like, I'm going to figure out a way to get this guy's attention. And I would just, I worked my ass off just being whatever needed, just doing whatever needed doing at that moment. Like if his water bottle was empty, I'd give him a new water bottle without him having to ask. If he didn't have his notepad, I'd, well, I'd just make sure he always had the notepad he liked with a sharp pencil and, you know, the talkback mic was there. I just made sure his world was awesome. Like he didn't need for anything when he was in the studio and I was the assistant. Everything was taken care of. And then I got to do a record with John Frusciante that Rick came in and wanted to listen to. And we hadn't printed any rough mixes. So I had to do on the fly 48 track analog rough mixes with track sharing and stuff all over the place while Rick's sitting right next to me. And I'm doing this and doing this. And John's yelling in my ear, where's that part? I said, it's in the second chorus. Don't worry, it's coming up. It's on track 32. It's coming up. And, you know, manual mixing the whole time, three or four songs in the course of a couple hours. And and um, it was at that point that I got his attention finally. And he knew who I was and that I could do something. And when I finally got to work for him, you know, and now I've done, I don't know, seven, eight records, something like that with him. To To observe him in the studio is really... It still fascinates me to this day because it's, it's you. You can't predict what he's going to say. There is there is never a predictable moment, other than maybe do it again, you know, or that was great one more time, like sort of, you know, typical producerly comments or whatever. But the he sits in the back of the room and he's an observer. He's a he's like the biggest fan of music that I've ever met. Like he knows all sorts of bands. He knows everything about everything pretty much and can bring in obscure references for people to listen to and get inspired by. But he's he in the truest sense, like people talk about these, you know, Indian gurus and these these, you know, icons of 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 whatever. Rick, to me, is is the guru of producing. He can almost always get an incredible performance. He can almost always get his way with what's happening in some manner. And he just has a way of, of bringing the best qualities out of whoever is sitting in front of him, whether it's the engineer, the assistant, the runner, the talent, the drum tuner, the piano tuner, everyone who's around is always on their best behavior and doing their best work. It's, it's, um, it's, it's pretty staggering, the, the sort of respect that he commands. And, you know, I, I, I like to think I'm always working really hard, but for some reason, Rick pulls more out of me than, you know, most other people I've worked with. He just, he has really interesting ways of asking for things. He has interesting ways of giving comments, of illustrating his point. 
and of making comparisons. And, you know, he'll just say, if he doesn't like something, he'll just, oh, I don't like that. And he, like I was saying earlier in the conversation, he asks for what he wants. He says what he means and, you know, gets the job done, really. Interesting. You've worked with a lot of, I mean, you've worked with Jim Scott. You've worked with Rick. Uh, you've worked with a number of very, very smart, talented guys, but who uh, engineers, producers. And the takeaway from many of them, I'm sure each one, you've probably got notes that you've made you know, after the fact, I'm sure you've absorbed an immense amount of information. And I'm sure you find yourself at some point, maybe like taking a little bit of each one and trying to apply it to your world. I mean, it's very easy to try to emulate other people. And I think it was Ross, Ross and I were talking and he was like, oh yeah, there's this great Oscar Wilde thing, this Oscar Wilde quote about just be yourself because everyone else is taken, <laughs> you know? It's truth. It would be very tempting for me to, if I was in your same position, to just be like, oh my God, each one of these people would have such an, uh, a profound impact on me that I, I think it would take some maturity and some years to finally develop into your own individual person and stop trying to emulate them. But it's, it's not really a question. It's just an observation. It's just like, I'm thinking through your, your, your past and what that, what that must mean to you and how you deal with clients to this day as a result of those experiences. I mean, look, every, every opportunity is a learning opportunity. You know, uh, everyone that I've worked with in, in, in whatever capacity it is, whether it's, you know, as the engineer, as the producer, as the assistant, as a friend, as a, you know, fly on the wall, whatever, there's always something to be learned and absorbed and made your own. You know, so as you're saying, like it, it you, you don't want to be someone else. You don't want to emulate someone else or steal someone's trick. I'm open about how I do things because no one else hears the way I do. No one else hears the way you do. No one's going to play drums the way Matt Pedro does, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, no one's going to mix exactly the way Michael Brower does. And to try to do so, I think is a bit disingenuous because then you're trying to do something that you're not. You're trying to put yourself in that exact person's headspace and you can't do that. Mm -hmm. You can try to use his techniques, and that's fantastic. You want to do multibus compression? Cool. Your mix is not going to sound like Michael Brower's because you're using multibus compression. It's going to sound like your mix through multibus compression. And you know, if you try to emulate Vance Powell or so and so or so and so or Chad Blake or whatever, any of these phenomenal engineers who have very original sounds, you're going to sound like a poor man's version of that guy. Mm -hmm. You know. But at the same time, be influenced by them. I think it's a Frank Zappa quote that says, uh, originality is merely hiding your influences as well. You know? And so having worked with all these guys and being friends with them and observed things and, and uh, talk to people, you learn all these different tricks that you can apply in your studio at home. And it's going to come out differently because of all the other things you know from all the other people and because you have your ears and your brain and your preferences for everything and your monitoring situation and this, that, and the other thing and the different band that you're working with, the different tracks, the blah, 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 blah. There, it, you know, when people ask me a question, sometimes I just say, well, it just depends on everything. Because <laughs> if, oh, okay, well, yeah, you could mix that song that way or you can mix that song that way or someone could do this or someone could do that. So what? You know? It's like, okay, yeah. Could you do this? Yeah. I mean, that, that's another Rick thing. Like, how about if we try it like this? Okay. How about if we try it like this? Okay. Try it. Do it. Whatever. 
I don't know. I ramble about and I go tangentially in conversation. So you have to forgive me. I, I get off my point. A, a no, lot. You, but, I, I um, think you're making your point. But my, I mean, so I, you know, like, for example, like um, two producers I work with that I admire greatly, um, Matt Serletic, Rick Rubin. They couldn't be more opposite. You know, Rick is about letting things flow and trying everything and, and, you know, being organic and stuff like that. Matt is equally talented at making everything precise and, you know, huge, lots of layers, lots of depth, lots of colors going on. And Rick is contrary. He's minimal. He just wants the least number of things you can possibly have on a track to make it great. And Matt was just like, oh, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's put this and let's put this equally valid in both directions, you know, and they both made hugely successful records. They're both extremely talented and knowledgeable and all the other things, but they, they go about things from such a different angle mm -hmm. um, that it's interesting. And so for me, my takeaway is like, is the ability to do and be influenced by both of those things. So I can have something organic, but then take a left turn with some weird sounding bleepy synthesizer over in the left speaker like Matt would do, you know, or I can layer drums with beats and, uh, you know, do something that's, you know, a modern sound or whatever, whatever, you know, something that someone who likes strictly organic things wouldn't necessarily go to. So if you're the up and coming guy and you're listening to the podcast right now and you hear this, what, what can that, or, or gal, what can, what, what can they do after, after hearing just this conversation we just had and, and to stop trying to always emulate their heroes, what can they do to create more of an original voice within themselves, whether it's, you know, producing, mixing, playing drums, whatever. I mean, what, what do you think is the key to that? Um, I think the key to it is doing what you think is right and not looking for external validation for those things. Mm. Um, you know, if you are producing a band and they do a take and you think it's amazing, say it, you know, do we need to do another take? Yes or no. Uh, be like make a decision. I, th I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, being decisive and being brave and being bold is, is the way to originality. It's the way to doing something unique and fun and very satisfying, you know, artistically, spiritually, whatever, you know, perhaps not financially all the time, but, um, you're, you're more apt to be proud of something and to have more fun with something and make something unique and original. If you're, if you're being decisive and brave with what you're doing. I like that. That's, that's sort of where I come from. I mean, emulating someone is neither here nor there. I mean, you know, I use techniques I've learned from Michael Brower. I use techniques that I've read about that, uh, that Chad Blake does. I use my ears in, in a way that I like to think maybe Elliot Shiner does, you know, and I, I love watching videos of what these people do and, and sharing knowledge with, you know, of how I do things and, and incorporate all these, these tricks and, and ideas. Um, and, uh, there, there's just limitless. There's so many people doing this now. There's so many different ways of doing it, so many different tools. Um, and I think we're in a great time because I can just go on the internet and say, you know, snare reverb, and I can find new ways and new tools for snare reverb, for example, you know? Uh, so whatever you want to learn, you can just type it into Google and find it. <laughs> I know. The, everybody... Or at least someone's opinion there. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, to have you two back when you were 12? Forget it. 
This is why people don't leave their house. Yeah. This is exactly why people sit in their house and, and, you know, and don't socialize. And, 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 and also to those people who are in bedroom studios, get out of your bedroom, go somewhere, get an internship, like talk to people. Don't sit in your bedroom 24 seven doing whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. Um, I, I, that's again, part of the reason I wanted to have a studio outside the house is to like get out of the damn house and experience life a little bit. I think I'm just so intrigued by the immense amount of people and situations you've been in to learn from and what must be going on in your brain now where you're like <laughs> trying to sort all of this out over the years going, okay, you know, what, what is Ryan Hewitt's approach? And I'm sure you think of yourself in the third person as you're, <laughs> <laughs> let me see, what is Ryan doing today? That's funny. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because it, it, it goes beyond it goes beyond music. It goes beyond mixing. It goes beyond recording. It's like, how do you treat your client? How do you interact with someone? How do you tell someone that they suck? How do you tell someone that they, that, that vocal performance wasn't good enough or that we need to do it again for the 31st time? You know, it's there, there's, there's a huge psychological component to this job that a lot of people don't seem to recognize. And I know a lot of extremely talented engineers who let's, I'm just going to be frank. I know a lot of extremely talented engineers who don't work as much as they should because they don't know how to deal with people. I know some guys who don't work as much as it because they should, because they smell bad and no one's told them that. And, you know, as far as personalities, there's a lot of that too. It's like, there are people that uh, artists do not want to be in the studio with certain types of people. And, that's difficult because if you're that certain type of person, you might not know it, you know, and you might not understand what's going on. I, I feel fortunate that I've, that I like to have fun. Uh, I've always been the type of person that likes to have a good time and, and keep people happy and keep the party rolling and stuff like that. And I learned a lot about that from in particular, Jim Scott and Michael Brower, two of the best people I've ever witnessed in the studio at turning, at just getting people on their side, turning excuse me, turning bad situations around, um, getting performances out of people, getting them to like what you've done, despite that it's not the, despite the fact that it's not what they wanted initially. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, selling your skills and your knowledge and your experience, uh, and, and getting the job done Hmm. in, in beyond just engineering shit. It's like, okay, you've made this great sounding record. Now the artist walks in and maybe doesn't like that certain something you did or that thing you worked for four hours on, how are you going to handle that? What is, what is the next phase of that conversation? Do you say, fuck you, this is amazing. Or do you say, all right, well, let's work on this. Or you say, listen to it again. How are you going to handle that? You're going to take it personally. Are you going to be defensive and shitty? Um, you know, all of these things certainly go through my mind when situations like that happen. And, you know, we don't always choose the right answer, but with more experience, you choose the right answer more often and, uh, and get better at it. So it's definitely, it's a very, very important thing to keep track of. <laughs> you just, you just won. You just won with that quote with, with what you did. That's awesome. Well, and it's also, it, you also win because you like to shower. I do like to shower. That, that is, uh, I like to shower and I mean, I might wear the same pair of shorts for a few days, you know, like, uh, or, or jeans or whatever, but generally I like to smell good. Yeah, it's always good to smell good, and you know, uh, 
to have incense burning in the studio for anyone who doesn't like what you smell like because everyone's got their own smell. You know, you walk into someone's house, it's like, oh, this smells like Mark. <laughs> this intense Mark in here. You know what I mean? <laughs> Interesting. Smells like Dave. Um, okay, two, two, two kind of wrap-up questions and then I, I think we're good. Um, <laughs> what is your feeling about equipment endorsements? Not just for you, but when you, I mean, you know, let's face it. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but I see some people out there that I, I'll just be honest. I think that there's some horrors out there. And, sure. and then I think that there's some genuine, you know, some people that put their money where their mouth is and they, they honestly support a product. And then there's people that use product endorsements, I think, thinking it's going to get them more fame or do you have well, an opinion? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's there's a lot of angles to it. And, you know, I, for myself, it, it definitely makes me feel good to have people want to, you know, put my face on, on some ad. But I, I, everything that I endorse, I use. I have the product. In a lot of cases, I bought it. You know, in some cases, they'll, they'll give me some stuff, I'll just to be honest. But I believe in all the companies that I support and that I'm, you know, a poster boy for, perhaps. And I was called on that recently by uh, by a salesperson. He's just like, you know, people call me up saying, you know, you know, Ryan Hughes, Hewitt uses these microphones, and you know, what the hell do they? What does he use them for? And he's she's like, do you really use these microphones? I'm like, yeah, this is what I use them for. You know, X, Y, and Z. And are there better mics? Sure, probably, but you know, I have these, I use them, and they sound really good. I have there's software that I endorse. I use all of it. And if that endorsement went away tomorrow, I'd be completely screwed. I'd, you know, I, but I wouldn't be screwed. I would just go and spend money and I would buy it because it's all really good. And there's, there's, there's companies that, that have politics that I don't agree with and I won't support them. I won't buy their stuff. I won't discuss anything with them because they do things that I don't agree with, um, you know, politically and, and, um, you know, support different organizations that I don't care to have my money going to. So they don't get my business. But then there's companies that do really great stuff, and uh, and and I like to support them. There's there's really smart guys out there, smart guys and gals designing really really good stuff, and I select where to spend my money. And uh, I like to get to know all the people that build my stuff too. Like I I can look at my rack, and I think I know everybody who's designed everything in my rack except for the Compex. But, uh, oh, and the DBX, I don't know DBX guys, but I know just about everybody else. I've met them all at the trade shows and, and, um, have immense respect for the guys who make our stuff and, uh, and software and, you know, all the tools we use. And so I think it's, I think it's important for us, particularly with software to, you know, to dime up and buy it. Cause it's like, if, if we're going to, I'm going to go off on a, on a piracy tangent for a second. Go for um, it. Because if, if you're using pirated software, you're no better than people who steal MP3s and steal music. It's the same thing. You know, a lot of guys will argue like, oh, I can't afford it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, then you're maybe in over your head. Or when you can't afford it, you better fucking buy it. I, I mean, I myself, I had a, a cracked version of some Wave stuff when I was a kid and had no money. But as soon as I got a check, I bought it. I spent $3,000 buying Wave's Diamond. And, you know, now it's 1200 bucks. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it, it, what is the return on investment? I used Waves plugins. I still use Waves plugins. I don't endorse them, um, but I like their stuff and I own it and I bought it. Um, I buy the FabFilter stuff. I think it's phenomenal. 
I don't know. There's, I, I can't even count the number of plugins I have. It's actually kind of excruciating. How, like, how many choices we get to, to put on every track that we have? It's, yeah, it, it consumes way too much time and thought. <laughs> okay, I like that. I like that. Um, and the final question: Is there some a couple mistakes in your past that you can that you feel comfortable talking about that you learned greatly from that others should not make? Oh, that's a. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that gets there, everybody. They're always there, like, ooh. There's, there's a lot. I mean, yeah. I mean, if, if you don't think you've made mistakes, then then there's your first. Uh, yeah, I, I've made many mistakes. I've erased stuff on tapes. I've, you know, lost things. I've not returned phone calls. I've not been prompt with emails. I think, let's just talk philosophically for a minute. I think the the um, the two biggest mistakes are not having confidence in your ability and and not being yourself, not being, not being true to yourself and, mm. and who you are and what you like and what you do. If, if, for example, whenever I try to second guess what a client might want, I always lose every time. If I do what I want, if I do what I think is right and what I like and what makes me bounce up and down in my chair and want to dance to a song, 97% of the time, it's, it, it, it's, it's right. It's, it's what they want. If someone's hiring you, I hope that they're hiring you for you and not to be a button pusher. Um, I've had people call me wanting to do, uh, I want to specifically do this specifically like this. And I want to do this and this and this. I'm like, well, then you should hire someone who does that because that's not how I do things. That's not how I think of things. Um, or, you know, I want this mix to sound like, you know, so-and-so I'm like, well, then you should hire so-and-so. Why are you hiring me? I'm flattered. I'm, I'll take your money. Fine. I'll do the job. But you want it to sound like that guy, go hire that guy. You know, uh, if someone came to me and said, make this record sound like Vance Powell, I'm like, Vance is down the street. Here's his phone number. I'll drive you to his place. Go work with Vance because Vance is Vance. If you want Vance, hire Vance. You want Brower, hire Brower. You want me, hire me. Um, I do my thing. You know, I don't know what that thing is. I just do it. (laughs) But that's my point is do your thing. We were talking earlier about developing your own unique thing. It already is because you're you. I'm taken. You're taken. You know, be yourself. Taken. Be be yourself. And you know, people are like, well, what does that mean? Just follow your instinct. What does that mean? I, I can't tell you that. I know. If you can't figure that <laughs> out, then you know, uh, it's a lot of people get stuck on on the words and the and the the um, semantics of things. But at the end of the day, like I was saying before, in answer to a, a similar question, it's like, do what makes you happy. Do, do what inspires you and, um, makes you want to get up in the morning. You know, it's like I get up in the morning. I can't wait to get to the studio most days. Um, and like I was here till two o'clock in the morning last night. I got here at nine o'clock this morning, you know, to finish up a mix on a deadline. And it's like, what am I going to do? Say no, I'm doing it. This is my job. I love what I do. And I couldn't wait to get in here. I was thinking about things while I was sleeping and while I was waking this morning of like, oh, oh, I got to try that. And I got here and I immediately sat down and tried all this cool stuff. And I'm like, oh, it works. Cool. And I finished my mix and it's like, awesome. You know, now I'm talking to Matt and, and, you know, hopefully a few other people. And and it's, I, I just, I get excited doing what I do. And, and it's, uh, the the opportunity to talk about it is just like uh, I, I just I can't believe I get to do this. I know it's it's in it's in well I mean listening to, watching you and listening to you talk about it, it's infectious you know and I I feel the same way I love doing what we do I love recording I I love talking about it 
clearly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when you agreed to do this, I was like, oh, hot shit. I can't wait to talk to Ryan because, <laughs> you know, I met you I met you once at AES and I have to say mm-hmm. you were very, uh, for a guy that's never met me, I felt like I knew you for a long time. Just the I, way you, you know, acted. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. It, it, it's it's funny because like, I have this this dichotomy of loving people and hating people. I love people that are that are fun and and cool and excitable, and I hate people that are not. You know, like the the people who are just curmudgeons and you know work a day people who are just trudging you know through the week to get to the weekend or or you know whatever who 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 are not excited by life and what they do and and by people who will do what they do and people who want to talk about this and people who have common interests. You know, I mean, to me, that could be just like the fact that we're all human beings are, you know, if you have a common interest in being a human being, you're my kind of person. You know what I mean? Uh, so, so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm infinitely excitable and, and I don't know. I'm, I, I, like I said, I just, I can't believe that I, that I have the, the good fortune to be making records for a living and that you called me to talk about it and that people, you know, might care to listen to this. It's it's like it's it's beyond my my wildest dreams. I wanted to do this, not not just talk to you, but talk to everybody. And I thought, I don't know if anybody's really gonna like this, but I, I'm gonna just try it because I want to do it. And to my utter astonishment, people are downloading this thing like now we're not as popular as Pensado's place, but we're getting like twelve thousand downloads a month. That's insane. I know. That's awesome. I'm so glad you're doing this. I mean, this is, this is, you know, it's, it's such a great outlet for, for information and and a great source of inspiration for, for, well, obviously thousands of people. Yeah. So, and your, your answers today have been very inspirational and I think a lot of people will appreciate it. And I, and I, I, I say that sincerely. I really do think you've, you've said some really, uh, at least things that have inspired me. So, (laughs) um, on that note, I, I think we're good, man. And I, I, I'm awesome. deeply appreciative of your time. Will you take care and, and and thank you again? It's been great. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, take care. All right, talk to you soon. Holy moly. Wow, great conversation with Mr. Ryan Hewitt there. I hope you enjoyed that. As usual, I certainly did. So, hey, next week, we're at the end of, we're going to be at the end of May next Monday. And uh, man, the month has flown by. Of course, we'll pick it up again, you know, a week from now and then a week after that. And then the week after that, we just keep going, of course. That's it. Tell your friends, spread the word. Let's get this thing growing and growing and growing here at Working Class Audio. All right, everybody. Great to have you here. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.